Jeremiah chapter 29, we will read verses 11 through 14. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven, where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. So as we get into the season of Advent, some people think of Advent as just like it's extra weeks of Christmas. It's like pre-Christmas celebration, right? We got, this is what's great about a church that celebrates Advent. We don't have just one weekend of Christmas. We have five of them we spread out. But Advent actually is its own special season. It's distinct from Christmas. The, the word Advent just means coming. And the time of Advent is this celebration of, of the coming, of the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. They have different goals. On Christmas Day, we do celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, Kathy, I was glad when we set up the nativity this morning, or last weekend, she set this all up and she said, now, G- baby Jesus, we don't put in here until Christmas Day. She gave me a little school and I appreciated it. G- baby Jesus, we don't put in here until Christmas Day. And that's right. That's good. Because what we are celebrating now is this expectation of the coming, the incarnation, the coming in flesh of Jesus Christ. And so Advent has this whole theme of expectancy. We're just waiting, longing, looking, hoping, repenting, longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. Advent is also a time for the reflection about the state that we find ourselves in like the people in Old Testament times. They were, as we studied the meta-narrative, that first series we did uh, years ago, it seems like, where we talked about this expectation of the coming Savior, the promised Messiah, the, the seed of Abraham, the, the king who's going to sit on the throne of David. They longed and longed and longed and cried out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, God, come be with us, be our God, let us be your people. They longed, they longed, they longed for the coming of this Savior. Jesus Christ shows up on Christmas Day, but now we, like them, have a similar circumstance in which we are longing and longing and longing for the coming of our Savior. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven after his resurrection and has promised the angel says at the, at, the, uh, at the ascension of Jesus that in the same way that he went into the clouds, he is going to return. And just like them for those thousands of years waiting for Jesus to show up, we too in this Advent season put a special emphasis on our longing for the Savior to come again. We are longing in the Advent season for this Savior for this coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Advent is broken down into four different weeks, and here at this church, the tradition is, uh, you can't, hope, uh, peace, love, and joy. And so this morning, we are celebrating and thinking on the theme of hope. The first Sunday in Advent for this 
particular church, we are talking about hope. So what is hope? I mean, if you try to think about and try to come to a definition of what, does, what do you mean when you talk about hope? What is hope? And, that, and how, we get our, how we're defining this term is very important. You can come up with lots of ideas of what you mean when you say you are hoping for something. Lots of times when we use the word hope, it's more like just wish. Like, I, I hope something good will happen. I, I hope when we pull into a restaurant, Darla wants to try out, uh, I hope this place has got something decent to eat. I, I have no idea if it's going to or not. Um, you know, I don't know, but we're going to try it out, and I hope it has something decent to eat. Um, Dennis hopes the Cowboys continue to do well. We don't know if they're going to or not. They, they're looking good, but, you know, it's a hope. We, we just don't, we don't know how it's going to play out. He, has no, he might have a, a confident expectation and delusions, but we don't really know. We hope, right? And some, some people, when they use the word hope, that's all they mean. It's like, well, I'd kind of like this to happen. Your, your children, if you're, if you're a child or, or a child at heart, you may be getting close to Christmas. You've got lots of things out there that you hope you're going to get. And the list is way too expensive. You're going to get a couple of things off of that probably. But you have these hopes, right? Well, I, I hope I get this on Christmas Day. There's no real guarantee to that idea of hope. But when, when the Bible speaks of hope, that is not the kind of hope that it means. Google defines hope, which is where we get all of our good information, right? Google defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's an expectation, a desire, I hope this happens. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it talks about, it speaks of it in a different way. John Piper says this about the biblical idea of hope. He says, hope, it does not imply uncertainty or lack of of assurance. Well, I hope. Biblical hope does not imply uncertainty or lack of assurance. Instead, biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. There is a moral certainty to it. When the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of a hope as a, as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. And there is a moral certainty to it. We have this hope, but it isn't like, well, I just wish this happens it's a hope as in a confident expectation. This has been promised and my hopes are in this promise as a moral certainty. God has promised it. God has said it will happen. And so I put my hopes in it, not as a wishful thinking, but as a confident certainty. This is what God has promised. This is what's coming. That is how the Bible speaks of hope. Our text this morning, Jeremiah 29, 11, is a very popular verse. You probably, you don't even have to go to church very much to hear the phrase, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. And every senior in high school gets uh, 15 cards uh, with this phrase on it, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's all about plans, all about your future, all about the bright things that are in front of you. Coffee mugs have Jeremiah 29 11 on it. You have plaques and inspirational posters that have Jeremiah 29 11 on it. But when we, when we read the Bible, and one of the things I want to try to train us as Bible readers is that this isn't, um, 
some sort of collection of cute, of neat sayings. And so we fan through this to try to find some isolated phrase. Oh, I kind of like what that says. I think that I'll make that now my life verse or whatever. And Jeremiah 29.11 comes to us not as just some isolated text out of the middle of nowhere. It comes to us at a very specific point in the scripture. This is, Jeremiah is writing something very specific. It's communicating a specific truth to a specific people that does apply to us today, but it is not always the idea of, well, God, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Hey, that sounds right up my alley. That's exactly what I want to hear. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. God's going to prosper me. He's going to give me hopes in a future, a good future. I like the sound of that. And so we people will claim onto that. And what you have done is you have ripped that verse from its context to, from what God is actually saying there in Jeremiah chapter 29. God is saying something different, and I will say far better than just temporal fixes. Jeremiah begins his work as a prophet of God during the reign of Josiah. So we just finished last week a three-part series in the book of Zephaniah. He also, Zephaniah also was a prophet that started at the time of Josiah. So Jeremiah and Zephaniah are prophets at the same time. And and the reason why I bring that up is because we know the people of Israel are not getting along very well at the time of Jeremiah. They are sinning greatly. They have walked away from God. They are following other gods and God is threatening them. I'm going to come in and wipe this whole thing out, repent Repent, Zephaniah is declaring to them. Jeremiah comes in saying the same message. You're going into exile. Repent. You're going into exile. Repent. Stop sinning. Turn to God. God's judgment is coming upon you. Repent. This This is the time that Jeremiah is prophesying to them. And does Judah respond by repenting and trusting in God? No, they do not. What continues to happen is the Babylonians come in and they carry off, they they have a king that's in charge of the nation of Israel at this time. Babylonians come in, they knock that king out, they kill him, get rid of him. They carry off a bunch of the people, walk them all the way back to Babylon and put a king that they think they can manage in, 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 in the place of the king they've just deposed. They've just taken off of the throne. The people of God are being carried off into exile marched off hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles over to Babylon. They are being marched off into exile. And Jeremiah, at this point in his sayings, in this book, he is writing a letter to these exiles. This is, if, you, if you have your Bible open still, you can even see the title above chapter 29. These, verse 1 of 29, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah writes this letter. This is someone else's mail we're reading here this morning, which I know is dangerous territory for me, uh, but this isn't a federal offense. This is published in our Bible, so we can read their mail. Uh, That's illegal for me to do and for any of the rest of us, but... uh, but they are reading, we're reading someone else's mail here this morning. These, these exiles have been marched out of Jerusalem to Babylon, and Jeremiah writes them 
a letter. He writes them this, and the whole body of the letter is chapter is verses four on down through twenty three. We don't have time to read it all of this morning, but this long letter of what God is going to be doing with His people. So we're talking about hope. These are exiles. They've been marched off. They're not at their home country. They're in captivity. What does Jeremiah say to them is their hope? What is the hope that he's holding out for them? And, and why would it be important for him to, to give them this hope? Why is that important? These people have been, the reason why it's important, these people have been marched off into exiles. It appears as though God's plans have totally been thwarted. God has been overthrown. They're looking at their lives and they're thinking, um, God lost. Here we are. We are God's people. We are supposed to have a king upon the throne of David from now until eternity. And here we sit in Babylon. God's plans have failed. They would, they would have felt that God's plans have been, felt, have, have been failed. God's plans have failed. And so he comes in and he promises to them plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future or a hope. To them, it seemed as though God's good plans have finally been stopped. But the clear message that God wants them to hear is that God, that Jeremiah wants them to hear, is that God has a plan for his people. His plan is the ultimate and good for them, and his plan cannot be stopped. These exiles are just beginning a 70 year exile. We see this in verse 10. We didn't read it this morning, but just prior to what we read, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years, 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you, my promise. I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. The reason why... Jeremiah, God is inspiring Jeremiah to give them this letter of hope is because they are beginning an exile of 70 years. There are people in this gathering that will die in exile. In this gathering of people, they will not return. They, and they will see nothing but the, the um, non-fulfillment of God's promise. And they will be tempted to believe at this point because life is going wrong all around them and they've been carried off into exile. They be tempted to believe God has failed. And Jeremiah comes in and says, listen, God says, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for your good, for your welfare. They are plans for your future to give you a hopeful future. So he comes in saying this because of the reality that there are some there that will die as captives. Does that mean that their hopes are in vain? No, their hopes were not for this life only or for a city and life of this world. But these people in their hopes are looking to a heavenly city. Jeremiah is trying to plant in them this hope for something higher than what they can see. Hopes in a God who is bigger than what their life is throwing at them. When I say that God's promises for them are not for this life, but for their eternal good in the next life, what's our reaction to that? When we say that, that Jeremiah is writing to them for their ultimate good in, in eternal life and not necessarily for a lot of success in this temporal life, what is our reaction at that point? 
when we say God is giving them hopes that, listen, there is an eternal city to come. There is a time when I will gather back all of my people. They will dwell with me. I will be their God. They will be my people. There is a day when that is coming. It may not be a day that you see, though, in this temporal life. What's our response? Typically, we think, it's kind of like we're having to say, all right, well, God, I really wanted this. I really wanted everything to go well here. But I guess if you give me eternal benefits, I'll take those instead. And that, that tends to be like this kind of, well, this Christian faith is about, well, you know, we don't get it now. But listen, you really want it now, but you're not going to get it. You'll have to settle for eternal benefits. And I want to flip that because Jeremiah is trying to flip that reality and saying, listen, what I am off, if your desires are just for this world, your desires are too puny. If you would be satisfied with God fixing everything temporally for you, if you'd be satisfied with God fixing everything temporally for you, your desires are too puny. They are are too easily pleased in these temporal things. God has eternal blessings for his children, for the life that is to come, a life that when Christ returns and sets up his new kingdom, that we live on it forever with him, free from sin, free from sickness, free from sorrow, free from struggle. That's the hope that that would come to us. This is what God is promising to us. Not these temporal things. These temporal things are going to ebb and flow. They are going to be have terrible moments in them. And what Jer- and, and for these captives, 70 years of exile has a lot of, well, this doesn't seem all that great to them. But Jeremiah is writing to them, letting them know God has a plan, and that plan will not be thwarted, and that plan is for the good of his people. It's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We turn back there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is talking about this, the struggle that they're having in this life. He says in chapter 4, verse 8, verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. Now, we got to stop there. Paul calls his afflictions light momentary afflictions. This is a man who is receiving lashings. This is a man who is being stoned to death. This is a man who is being thrown into jail for witnessing to the gospel. He is enduring serious persecution. On top of that, he has a thorn in the flesh that God has seen fit to not remove from him. And Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is trying to put their hopes on something bigger than what this world hands at them. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory. It's a very good book, but... When he talks about these desires, he compares the desires for this life as opposed to desires for the life that God has for us. He says this, he says that we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We get so tied up in this life and in these desires 
that all we can see is what I want here. And we're like a child, C.S. Lewis says, not me, like an ignorant child. I didn't call you that. C.S. Lewis says that. Like an ignorant child who is in the slum and just, I just want my mud pies. I just want my mud pies to be all right. Can I just make a good mud pie? And is obsessed with a good mud pie because he's never heard of the idea of going to a holiday by the sea, of going and enjoying something so grand and so vast that it makes mud pies really transient and, and insignificant in comparison to the weight of glory that God has for his children, the great big hopes that he has for his children. So, this is the context coming to us from the book of Jeremiah. These people are in exile. Life is not going well for them. And the reality is, it may not ever get better for many of them. And God is saying in the midst of these things, in the midst of this temporal life fading away, He wants them to know, I have a plan for you, and it is for your good. It is for your highest good. It is plans for your ultimate welfare. It is plans for you to have the most hopeful future that you can have. What then is our hope? Firstly, firstly, our hope is that our hope is to be grounded in that we actually are God's children. Our first hope is our first grounding is that our hope is actually that we are God's children. For those who persist in their rebellion, there is no hope. For us to sit up here, for, for those who persist in their sin, who do not want to confess that they are under, sit under the judgment of God, that God's wrath towards them is deserved. For those who want to persist in their sin, this promise is not for them. There is no joyful future. They may have many benefits of this life, but when it comes to ultimate things, there is nothing but judgment coming for those who sin and transgress and do not repent before a holy and righteous God. One of the big themes of Advent, repentance. John the Baptist, repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Repentance. Our hope is, is only found in the reality of us being children of God. Do not attempt to stand on your own on the great day of the Lord and of His anger and of His wrath. What can be done on that day? What can be done in preparation for that day? Repent and believe the gospel. Like the exiles in Jeremiah's time earned their exile and their sin, we too in our sinfulness are deserved exiles. We are deserved exiles under the penalty of our own sin. Because of this sinfulness, Colossians 3, 6, the wrath of God is coming. Sitting under the weight of that, is what makes the first advent of Jesus Christ so powerful and so such good news. Mankind sitting under the wrath of God, deserving His judgment. And what happens? God incarnates. He puts on flesh. God the Son. Jesus Christ is born. And He lives the righteous life. Every one of you, He lives the righteous life that you all should have lived and you are failing miserably at doing. He lived it. He merits God's righteous pronouncement. He merits God's favor. And what do we see happens to this son? He goes to a cross. Does he die for his own sins? No, he has none. Whose sins does he die for? Let me look at all of you again. He dies not for his own sins. He dies for yours. The wrath that is deserving to you is laid upon Christ so that through your repentance and faith in this work, you would be forgiven of your sin washed clean, made righteous, the merits of Christ. As your wrath goes upon Christ, 
His righteousness is imputed or given to you. And now God looks at you and He doesn't see wrath, but He sees His Son. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees righteous and His favor falls upon you. And then you, like these exiles, the time of Jeremiah's day, like those exiles, we today who have repented and trusted in Christ, God says these words to you. I have my plan for you, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for your welfare and to give you a hopeful future. First, we must ground this upon the reality of our faith, being God's children through faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Second, the hope then is... The hope that God has planted into our hearts as His people, hearts of His people, is the confident trust that no matter what difficulty may come your way in this life, no matter what difficulty may come your way in this life, know that the sovereign Lord of the universe, His plan for His children is nothing but their ultimate good. And nothing in this life, nothing in this life can deter, deter Him from his designs. Will this plan be free from difficulties? Some, maybe. Some may get a lot of freedom from a lot of difficulties. Most will endure difficulties at some time, and none will endure every difficulty. But this plan does have difficulties. We are not told this plan will be free from difficulty, distress, or even death. But we are told that this plan ultimately is for our welfare and that we will fare well in the ultimate sense. This is where Romans 8.28 really comes home. When God says, um, when God says that God, He works together all things together, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. In the ultimate sense, when you are God's child, nothing this world brings you can ever deter God's plan for your ultimate goodness for your ultimate good, for your ultimate relief, for your ultimate welfare. We need that grounding. We need that hope in a life like we live that is so tough. One day, one final day on the coming again of Christ, one final day, every distress, disturbance, disaster, death, and discouragement will be proved to lead only to the ultimate joy of His children. Illustration. This is the close. Corey Tim Boom uh, was persecuted under Nazi Germany. She was a Dutch watchmaker's daughter, uh, and she hid Jews in, 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 in the time of, of her family. They all brought in Jews that were coming under persecution. They would come and they would hide them away. And word got out to the Gestapo and other uh, Nazi, uh, pro-Nazi forces there where they lived that they were hiding Jews. And they ended up getting arrested and sent into concentration camps. Her father dies 10 days later. She lives and moves from concentration camps in pretty awful places with her sister. And eventually her sister does die in the concentration camp. Her sister says, there is no pit so deep that God, that he is not deeper still. But Corey Tim Boom, she lives through this. She survives through the concentration camp. And people visiting her house one day, the story is told that she had a, a tapestry or a kind of a, an embroidered thing that she left on her table, always up, wrong side up. And people would come in and they'd say, well, that's upside, they'd turn it over and she'd take it and she'd flip it back. She says, no, 
actually, when you do a cross stitch, you know, this side has this pretty pattern, and this back side is just this mess, the ugly strings. And she said, life is like this, she cut that out as a reminder of life being like this tapestry, and that God sits on the top side of this tapestry, and when he, on this bottom side, we see all sorts of ugly strings, dark colors, painful things, Gold and silver mixed in as well. There's good things that happen in there. But what we see really is a mess of strings. And all this life, what we look upon, we look up and we think, what in the world, what is the point of this string? <laughs> what is the point of this difficulty? Why this string here? Wouldn't we get rid of that string? And she, she made the point that, like this tapestry, though we on this side see nothing but a mess of strings, the day will come when we get to this side of the tapestry and we'll say, what God has done is perfect. What God has done is just right. Wonderful. This tapestry that he's woven, down here we see a mess and so much we don't understand. And on this side, we will see and sing, look what God has done. She wrote this poem. It says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. And so we, like those in Jeremiah's day, long for the coming of this rescuer. We repent and long for his coming. We long for the day when our hopes become reality, when all the broken, confusing, and upsetting strands of this life get revealed to shine forth the glory of God and his great plan. That day is coming. And we pray, God, hasten the day. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would... Awaken our eyes and our hearts to the hope that there is in Christ our Savior. Standing on our own, we have nothing coming our way except your judgment. But God, through the sacrifice of your Son, through the the coming of our Savior to this earth, we can be forgiven of our sins, be adopted as your dear dear children, and promised this great glorious future when we get to the other side and see that all of these ugly strands were working your great purposes and we will rejoice on that day god may we today enjoy a foretaste of that joy knowing and trusting in you putting our hopes in you that you will bring that day and nothing can deny or stay your hand from accomplishing your purposes we pray these things in christ's name amen